I'm now going to read to you God's word to us this morning. It's Peter's word to the Christians around him, and it's God's word to us this morning. And it comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 11. The heading is Living for God, or another heading would be Stewards of God's Grace. And it starts with that wonderful word, therefore. So reading from Peter's letter, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God with regard to the Spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another Without grumbling, each one should use whatever gift he has, he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power for ever and ever. Amen. For those who are visiting, you may be aware that we are having a series working our way in some detail through this uh, exciting and challenging letter of 1 Peter. He obviously had unfinished business because he went on to write the second letter. I have to say, I wouldn't choose uh, to preach a sermon on this subject. It's tricky, it raises issues, and it's challenging. However, the heading that we have is impacting others through our priorities. And I presume that that means, or I'm making the assumption that we are aware that those are spiritual Christian priorities that we've embraced 
as we have come to know the Lord Jesus personally. Indeed, often our impact on other people isn't obvious from our perspective. What we need to do as we think about that, and indeed as uh, Chris has uh, given us an update on the challenge of finishing the task of the building, is we have to keep the goal in mind. We have to keep that ahead of us. If you don't have a goal, you'll never score, will you? Or you won't know if you've missed it. And a goal or an incentive provides new energy and fresh motivation. Let me illustrate. The first woman to swim the English Channel both ways was Florence Chadwick. Her next challenge was to swim from the Catalina Island to mainland California, a distance of over 30 kilometers. Halfway, after uh, 15 hours of swimming, Florence Chadwick was pulled out of the water, exhausted, just a mere 800 meters from her goal. It poses the question, why she couldn't make that final effort. Well, it transpires that it all lies in the weather. And you might ask, was it blowing a gale? Was it an exceptionally strong current? No. It was something quite innocuous, really, and it was, it was a foggy day. And Florence, quite simply, couldn't see the shore, and she gave up. Two months later, on a clear day, she swam all the way. And the commentators said that seeing the finishing line makes all the difference, certainly to an athlete, and certainly to us as we live out our lives. Provides new energy, fresh motivation. That brings us, if you like, to uh, this letter of Peter. And I don't think this fact is lost in the way that he writes. He wants his readers quite simply, simply to go to the finishing line. But there's a, there are hindrances, there are setbacks, there are clashes, there are all sorts of problems. They're buffeted by false teaching. People who believe this, people who believe that, and they are confused. They're uncertain about the Lord's return. Some people have died. Where are they? What's happened? The Lord surely is coming. What's to become of them? But what he does is to encourage them to press on to think clearly about their faith, which gives them a clearer vision of the goal. Something to sustain priorities. The heading is impacting others through priorities. The, the drift of the sermon is more, how do we sustain that? We can be, how often can't we, and it's true of me as you, I guess, for the most part, that we can be good um, starters, but we need to be good finishers. Most of us have unfinished projects and tasks in our lives that we need to give attention to. So, here we are. That's the sort of introduction, keeping the goal in front of us. We're not going to make any cross-references in this sermon. Just concentrate in chapter 4, 1 to 11, which is tricky enough as it is if you've, if you've read it. And I challenge the home group leaders, uh, think 
clearly because I hope some people can ask you some tricky questions on Thursday. I'm one of the leaders, so live in hope. So here we are. What he's doing here is making clear that the, the Christian life is centered actually not on us centrally, centrally, but on God. It's about him first and foremost, and it is God's will. Years ago, a previous generation, when they used to write letters uh, and put it in the post rather than email, they would often conclude DV. Everything was subject to some greater will, God's will. God's will. And that must surely include suffering. So you have the will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect, and you have human suffering side by side, which often seems to be a contradiction. And yet what Peter does is to give some, shall I almost call it fringe benefits, but they're more than that. They are blessings of suffering that we wouldn't choose, but they come our way. Look at three, for instance. The first benefit of suffering is this, that it actually helps us focus on priorities. Often people will say in a crisis, you know, it proved to be a blessing in disguise because now I can see how the trivia of my life, a lot of the things are of little consequence. It can happen like that. So, you see in verse 2, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil or human desires, but rather for the will of God. There is a, a sort of a transferring here helps us to have priorities. Secondly, it enables us to cultivate healthy attitudes. Look at verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves with the same attitude. That is surely a key verse that opens up this passage. Christ suffered. Arm yourself with the same attitude. That actually, if the sufferings of Christ were foretold, often the heartaches that come our way that seem random and bad luck in the wrong place at the wrong time, rather the right place at the right time, somehow come under God's providence. And then a third benefit is this, that we can exercise a submissive spirit. That's the sort of the subtext of Peter. We are not submissive people. It isn't in our nature. We are assertive. We don't want people to tell us what to do. And, and if you like, the prevailing culture, this isn't, it may be particular, some people, not all, when Peter writes to them. But this is the culture. Look at verse 3. How would you like somebody to say this to you? Look, you have spent enough time. Look at verse 3. In the past, doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunken, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry, and so on. Not the best thing to put on your CV, is it? I don't think so. You, and yet what he's saying is, look, there's another culture, there's another power at work. I'm living a more submissive life because I now am confessing that Jesus is Lord. And that impinges upon my life. I'm not happy with living a double standard. Now, at this point, I want you to pause, stop and think because in verses 1 and 6, we have two very challenging verses. And I challenge you, I may not do justice to them, you talk about them in, in your home group. Let's look at the first. Verse 1. Therefore, what is this verse saying to us? Have a think about it now. Since Christ suffered in the body, 
arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. What is that? Let's have a discussion, you might say. Is it a form of spiritual masochism? The more, you know, in, in some countries during certain high days and holidays, people flagellate themselves. And they see it as purging of, of their sins. I don't think it's saying that. Therefore is surely the key verse. What do we mean by that? Well, it's the link between what has been said with what he's about to say. It's this link word. And if we don't get that connection, then we can draw out all sorts of applications which may not be helpful. So what Peter is doing here is, this is what I have said to you about the suffering of Christ. This is what I'm going to say to you. So we should ask the question, first of all, then, what has he just said? Well, chapter 3 and verse 18, for instance, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. Look at verse 22. Thinking about the Lord Jesus who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. So Christ has suffered the just for the unjust. That's you and I. That's what he's been saying. Okay, what is he about to say? Christian people are not tourists. We are pilgrims. And we are on a journey, a destiny to the glory of heaven. And it is very easy, in, not only in the mundane, but just the, the sheer experience of life, to lo lose sight of that. We are on a journey. And we're en route to heaven. So then he says, if that is so, you need to do something. Brace yourself, or in other words, arm yourself with the same attitude. Attitudes always before actions. Thinking before doing, if you like. Christians are not tourists. We are pilgrims. We are en route to heaven. And we forget about that so quickly. Arm yourselves so that, why should you arm yourself? So that sin doesn't dominate our lives. Negative attitude doesn't, doesn't so dominate our relationships. Well, that's opening it up in terms of what this verse is trying to say to us. So as a result of my relationship with the living Jesus, certain benefits filter down. Let's have a look at uh, four very quickly. The first, I hope that this is true that I am no longer a slave to sin. Arm yourself with the same attitude as you live in the body. So easy that it can dominate our lives. Secondly, I am not overcome by such selfish desires as I once was. You see, you know the tenses, I, I, I've become a Christian, I am, I will be. Those are the tenses are the same with what the Bible calls sanctification, changing. I have been, I am, and I will be. And there are setbacks in this journey. Sometimes I have a relapse. I go back into automatic pilot, into my old way of thinking and reacting. And oftentimes I have to say sorry. 
I'm not overcome by these selfish desires as I once was. Thirdly, I am now living for the will of God. Not simply for my will. And I am from now on, and it's the best illustration of a Christian, I am now a walking civil war. As the Bible calls it, I have my old nature pulling me this way, and I have the new nature drawing me that way. A fourth thing here is these benefits that filter through our lives is this. My life has changed. I may not be aware of it to, some, to a great extent, but it has been changed and is still being changed. And it, what, in what context is it being changed? In the context of, you've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. And there's a bit of play words there because that is also pagan worship with, with um, temple prostitutes and so forth and the blasphemous declarations against, um, against God because of multiple deities. We, we don't need to get into that, but that, that's the context. So, I want to, if, if I'm not doing justice to this, I want to quote to you from um, a hymn by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. Um, some of his hymn, hymns are of greater impact even than that one. Towards the end of his life, he, he struggled greatly with his past misdemeanors, which were very, very significant. If you read the account of John Newton, it's deeply humbling. The latter part of his life struggled. And he, as a great poet that he was, he puts this struggle in the form of a hymn. We haven't sung this hymn for a long time. I want to read it to you. Okay? So what we're illustrating is this struggle. I am changed and I'm being changed. And often I realize I'm not what I ought to be, but I'm thankful I'm not what I used to be. Do you see this? So here he is. Let me read it to you. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's his prayer. I, I'm praying that. And he says, "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." His prayer was this, like this. I hope that in some favoured hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sin and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. The hymn ends like this. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried, Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. And the last verse. Think of 1 Peter 4, 1 to 11. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. That is an authentic expression of a Christian. Like a walking civil war. It's nice if you can put it in poetic ways. Uh, there's, a, a, there's a quote here from, in, in this uh, excellent book about um, the change that takes place in people's lives. And the author 
gives a quote from um, Charles Colson. Um, he had a reputation of being ruthless and for all sorts of other misdemeanors. Colson, he gained notoriety in the Watergate scandal, which still has repercussions in the White House, I guess. The press, however, greeted Colson's confession that he was born again with hoots of derision. Cartoonists had a field day picturing a cover-up as an instant saint. However, with the passing of the years, Colson's genuineness in caring for prisoners launched the, the largest prison fellowship um, that the country's ever known. So the cynical laughter eventually died down. Colson's conversion began to command respect. Something, even among the cynics, had happened to his life. And I guess that's true of all of us. And people might sometimes look at us and say, well, if you're a Christian, do you know what? The jury's out. And maybe they have a, a, a right up to a point. My life has changed. And it's still being changed. And all of that is illustrated here. Now there's a second troublesome verse. And I don't think I can do just as this. What do you make of verse 6? Here we are, fully paid up evangelicals. We've got a high view of the Bible and the gospel. And it's a tricky verse. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. I'm sure you want to help me with that tricky verse. You, you almost need to start what it isn't saying before you need to start to say what it is saying. Some, for example, take this to say that Christ preached the good news of all the dead in his descent into hell. And on the third day, rising again from the dead. Some say that he went to preach to the Old Testament saints before the gospel was proclaimed. It's a tricky verse, but one of, one of the difficulties of trying to get into this is that the early church had a problem, and it was a good problem. They were so convinced with the imminent return of the Lord Jesus that they were troubled by the fact that some believers had died. Have they missed out? Where are they? What's to become of them? And you, if you've been in the church long enough, you'll know that people have all sorts of views about the Lord's coming. And that's why he, he tries to follow this up in verse 6. The end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded. Paul had to write to the church and to say, look, if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we have all people most miserable. We've missed out big time. And he says, if that's what you believe, look, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow you die, it makes no difference. But no, no. So it was a pastoral problem that he tries to deal with in a sort of a, a doctrinal way. 
the context is that of aggressive persecution. These Christians are under, under the kosh big time, under Nero, who's oppressing them. And as Christians, we must remind ourselves surely that we follow a Savior who has suffered. Arm yourself with the same attitude in the context of suffering. We need to see our Christian suffering as a participation in Christ's suffering. That takes the sting out of it. Look in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 13, for example. Look at this. But rejoice. This is the counter-argument now, verse 13. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. To be honest, we would say, no, no, I complain. Why should this happen to me? Why am I like this? Why have these events taken place? Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's not the end of the story. Okay. Notice how practical then Peter is as we try to sum this up by issuing three very quick commands. So, I know this is a challenging uh, sermon to listen to, and it's not particularly easy to preach, but we, sometimes we just have to address these things and, and, and have a high view of the Bible and often perhaps struggle with them. Let's look at these three commands in this immediate context. The first, don't be distracted by the things that you don't know. Don't be distracted, but carry on praying. The things that the early church may well have begun to be slack on. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. It's easy to put our prayer life on the back burner, isn't it? We were looking at that before. So there you have it in, in verse 7. Don't be distracted. Carry on praying. I'm sure you've got these posters and mugs and uh, at home. Uh, keep calm and carry on. Carry on and carry on gardening. I've seen somebody with a mug glass. A good motto. Or just you fill in the gap. Keep calm and carry on praying. Don't give up on praying. And, and if you are going to keep praying, you need a clear mind. Isn't that interesting? Be clear-minded. Have sound judgment. Actually, the literal meaning is here, be calm. So we could say, keep calm and carry on praying. That's a good dictum, isn't it? So don't be anxious. Don't give up. Prayer keeps us alert. And it sustains our priorities. That we impact other people. Don't be distracted. Carry on praying. Even if you think this isn't achieving anything. Secondly, don't be discouraged. Carry on loving. Look, look what he says here. Okay, you see in verse 7. Um, so that you, you can pray. The end of all things is near. Verse 8. Above all, more than anything else. Uh, okay, you know, this is difficult. But look, in addition to that, above all, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. Don't be discouraged. Carry on loving. 
You have that in verse 8 and 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. You can offer hospitality with your car, for example. Give somebody a lift to church. It's not just simply having people for Sunday lunch. Mahatma Gandhi once said to a, a believer who was a Christian, I like you, as you know, as a leading Hindu, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. They are so unlike your Christ. Now, that's a, easy to say that, and often that's true of us. You see, we are most like beasts when we kill. We are most like men when we judge. We are most like God when we forgive. And love is expressed in forgiveness. Forgiveness is love in action. And we have no right to be unforgiving with anybody, whatever they've done, if you're a believer, because you've had all your sins forgiven. Don't be distracted. Carry on praying. Don't be discouraged. Carry on loving. Don't give up on people. Part of being submissive is that we're not always right and we need to say sorry. Thirdly, and very quickly, don't be disengaged. Don't let be a disconnect between you and what God has called you to do. So easy to go into automatic pilot, isn't it? Automatic pilot. I was coming to church week last Sunday and I saw people going up to Long Crend and I said, there, there they are. They're in the car. They think I'm going to church. They've done it for years. They've come to the roundabout. They're going up to Long Crend and they should be coming to Lord William's school. So easy, isn't it? You just do it automatically. We can come to church like that and think automatically. So you see, don't be disengaged. Carry on serving. Look at verse 10. Each one should use whatever gift he or she has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms. And it, it, there is an anticipation of variety and diversity. We shouldn't be like anybody else. We should be ourselves. And we are called to serve where God has placed us. In our homes, with our children, with growing families, in the school, at work, with the grandchildren, among colleagues within our community. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in all its various forms. And if you're good at speaking, well, okay. Do it as one who is speaking the very words of God. Who wants to know your opinions? We want to know what the gospel says and how it will transform people's lives. And if anyone serves, he should do it with the strength that God provides so that in all things he may be praised. Carry on serving. Carry on loving. And if you, have, if you are resolved to do that, you will know that it's difficult. Some people, church people, can be exceedingly unkind. 
you carry on loving. It is your ultimate call. And carry on praying. And there's a PS. The end of verse 11. Here is a priority. We've come full circle. A priority to pursue. Dio Gloria. The glory of God. Let that be written over us. The glory of God. Do you see these chaps with tattoos? Especially rugby players. So look, they look quite hideous, I think, sometimes. But if I was tempted to have a tattoo, I won't. Hannah would kill me. But if... What about Dio Gloria? But then I'd have to live up to that, wouldn't I? The glory of God. The glory of God. You see, at the end of verse 11, it's like... Um, a lovely benediction on all of this. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen to that. Amen to that in the context of all of this. And just think about it. How many family conflicts would be resolved if they stood back for a moment and said, will this result in the glory of God? Chances are it won't. Think about the divisions in church life that could be reconciled if we said, will this result in the glory of God? Think of marriages that could be healed. Think of relationships that could be renewed. If we were to give God the glory. Put it like this. If I get the glory, well, it ends with me. That's it. But if God gets the glory, it doesn't end with me and it goes on to others and it blesses others and the ripples are felt much greater than we'll ever know this side of time. The blessing overflows to others. Impacting others by our priorities. I hope that we will have sharper priorities and a clearer focus as we live out our lives where God has placed us.